Our sermon scripture text is taken from Acts 2, verses 14 to 41. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 
about 3,000 souls. Good morning. I don't know if you noticed, uh, Brenda noticed that Jake and Blaine and I have our uniforms on this morning. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you again for displaying your majesty in our weather. Um, I'm thankful that uh, those whom uh, it would be unsafe for them to travel, decide to stay home, I pray that they are uh, tuning in to listen, Lord, to the gospel and to worship with us, as, even if not presently, Lord, but um, spiritually, in spirit, God. Um, God, I pray that you'd be on my mouth and in um, our people's ears, Lord. Um, minister to me and um, those listening here this morning, Lord. Jesus, name I pray. Amen. So uh, I'm going to start with a baseball uh, illustration, so don't fall asleep now. Uh, but in 2001, the Oakland Athletics and the New York Yankees played each other in a divisional rivalry. Uh, and it was for the pennant, so it was one of the last games of the season, and a winner of this game would go to the World Series, and the Yankees won, which is not a big surprise. The Yankees have a history of success, but more glaringly, the biggest difference between these two teams is the Yankees have a much, much larger payroll than the Oakland Athletics. The Oakland Athletics is widely known as the poorest team in all of baseball. Um, and this is a problem for, for many reasons. You can imagine that a team trying to be competitive with a short amount of funds, it, it's going to be more difficult for um, other teams. Um, so they decided that something needed to be done. One of their biggest problems was that they would get lucky. They would sign uh, young players to small contracts, but they would lose them the next season because they couldn't afford to keep them. And so teams like the Yankees would take them away. And this was the Oakland Athletics' biggest crutch, and they're often teased as being a feeder team for the rest of the league. So they decided to do something different. In 2002, their head offices got together and decided, how can we value our players differently? And they decided to sign a bunch of players who were undervalued because of certain characteristics. They looked funny, or they weren't as strong, or they weren't as fast, but their defining characteristic was that they got on base and they scored runs. And it, it worked out. In 2002, the Yankees and the Oakland Athletics won the same amount of games. The Yankees spent $1.4 million per win, and the Oakland Athletics only spent $260,000 per win. It's much, much different. So what was the difference? Well, the Oakland Athletics needed to level the playing field in some way. They needed a complete renewal of everything, not just how they spent their money, but how they philosophized about the game of baseball, using statistics behind the scenes to evaluate players in a specific way more than any other team could be able to see. And it changed baseball. So while I cannot make a perfectly clean analogy from baseball to salvation, though I wish I could, um, what is clear is that just like the Oakland A's, uh, the odds are pitted against them. And in our lives, the odds are pitted against us, uh, though we do it to ourselves. We are the ones who have sinned, and above all else, what we need is a new way of life, a forgiveness of sins, and God has granted that through his son, Jesus Christ. So in Acts 2, Peter's going to do something unprecedented. 
He's going to totally change the game. He's going to share tremendous news of a new life while being empowered by that very same power that he is teaching of. And Peter is awfully unique. He is the most unlikely apostle to do this because he has denied Jesus three times. Someone who you would fully expect Jesus would do away with, Jesus actually restores him. He does the unlikely because that is the kind of God we worship. And now God's Spirit will empower him to teach. So in our text, the Holy Spirit has come, and we're going to observe three points in this passage of Peter's sermon and its result. They are the end of the age, the deity of Jesus, and the new way of living. So follow along with me as we reread verses 14 through 16. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So, he, so Peter's a good evangelist. He's, he's actually giving us a model that we still follow here today. He's tying in a current circumstance situation to the gospel. He's using their mockery and their accusing terms to um, t- turn the situation around and talk about Jesus. So he's going to reply to two specific things, the commotion of the crowd and the sensation of Pentecost. That is his, his segue into his sermon. And he starts off really well. He addresses his accusers first, and he gets their attention. He says, no, we're not drunk, as you suppose. And he's, he's kind of mocking them. He's kind of teasing them. He goes, no, it's, it's so early in the morning. And, and also, this is, a, this is about 9 a.m. That's, that's what the third hour is. And this is a time when the Jews would get together, and they would, they would fast, and they would pray. So it is, it is very glaring of them to accuse them of being drunk so early. But he goes on to explain. He says, well, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel there in verse 16. And the language there is, is kind of strange. He, Peter is not so much saying, um, you know, this is, the, this is the first, he's not so much presenting Joel as a first occurrence. It's more akin to saying, this is that spirit which Joel prophesied about, um, sort of to remind them of what they already know. They're already expecting some kind of spiritual awakening because they would have known this passage in Joel very well. And it says, And in the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood." Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what do you suppose Peter, about Joel, is essentially communicating here? Well, many things. Let's discuss some general categories just to uh, check off. The outpouring of the Spirit. Blessings of the Spirit. He describes here dreams and visions and prophecies. He describes the signs that will take place in this time, the ushering in of the end times. And lastly, he mentions the significance for here on out, that sins can ultimately be totally forgiven by God. It's pretty simple, right? No. It's a dense list, guys. And uh, so how do we make this digestible? You know, where is the point? What is Joel trying to say? What is Peter trying to emphasize? Well, let's consider a goal for Peter's speech. He's essentially saying the Spirit is here. Boom. 
And this is going to prove that God has made Jesus Lord in Christ. And that's going to be our, our, uh, our map for this sermon. He's going to use the coming of the Spirit to try to show us all the things about Jesus that are necessary for salvation. And he's going to start, like we just read, by using Joel's prophecy to communicate that since this is the Spirit that God promised, this must be the last days. So he's using the Spirit to say, we're in the end times. And how will this be helpful? Well, let's define the last days. Essentially, and historically, the last days, or the end times, refers to the moments in time when Jesus was conceived until Jesus returns to earth to judge the living and the dead, which is that great and magnificent day there in verse 20. And to help us understand, Peter gives us a defining characteristic of this last age. Of all the signs and wonders, people tend to, to glare at when they read the book of Revelation. They try to decode it, right? But I'm here to tell you this morning that the most defining characteristic about this time until Jesus comes, beyond what we can predict or anything, is Peter says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The salvation is ready and available for you and for me. And so let's remember Peter's end goal. It's to deliver the message of salvation on account of death's Christ, Christ's death and resurrection. Though these people accuse Christ, they are hurting and sinful, and they need to understand Christ's heart for them. So what does the last days entail? Well, namely, like I mentioned, the free gift of salvation for all who call upon Jesus. But the mechanism of understanding and communicating with God is going to be his spirit. God has poured out his spirit on all flesh, and he has promised two things through Joel and is also exemplifying those same two things through Peter's actions. The Spirit has come for empowerment, and the, the Spirit has come for renewal. So how is the Spirit bringing renewal in this event? Well, Peter, like I mentioned, is the least likely of the apostles to lead. He's been given understanding and authority to lead others to Christ, to explain this unique and great phenomenon of Pentecost. And the Spirit also has caused the people an equal opportunity to hear in their own language the free gift, the reversal of Babylon. So what does this cause you to consider? Maybe you do not remember the last time you felt the nearness of God's Spirit. The tongues of fire and the sounds were exceptionally a unique experience in this situation in our text. However, the most similar thing that we experience with God's presence then and now for all ages for those who come to Christ is that we experience new life, joy, fellowship, worship, freedom, boldness, and empowerment to witness. And do you recall when you first knew Jesus was your Savior? That feeling, no matter how strong, whether it was tremendously comforting and joyful, or just an acknowledgement of the truth of Christ, that was the presence of God's Spirit, truly. But perhaps it's better to understand the Spirit from the perspective of Jesus' ministry. This also gives us insight into how Peter and the apostles may have understood God's Spirit. The Spirit which was given to the disciples is God's Spirit, which was upon Jesus in his ministry. And Isaiah prophesied its presence with Christ in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. 
And Jesus also read this referring to himself in the synagogue in Luke 4. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The promise that Joel prophesied and that Isaiah prophesied and that Jesus has passed on to his apostles is the promise for you and me, which is the Spirit has come for renewal. The end of the age has come to establish a tradition that Jesus has passed to the disciples and has come to you in your life. God's Spirit has come to continue what Christ has started. This is what Jesus meant in part by Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit is upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's a question. Is the Spirit of God bringing renewal into your life? as intended? Is it bringing renewal into the lives of people you're around? Which means, for example, have you felt the nudge of the Spirit to spend time in God's Word? There's a call to renewal. God wants to be an important part of your thoughts. And have you remembered often that Jesus comes as a man, lived a perfect life, died for your sins, and rose again? That's renewal because Jesus has given you forgiveness and filled you with love. And have you remembered that God's Spirit is our most powerful and closest companion in our pilgrimage? And that also is renewal because no matter what you face in this life, you'll do it with Him together. And if you've not understood God's renewal in your life, then it might be a good opportunity to remember the Spirit's part in the Christian life. It's good to remember that the Spirit does not necessarily become a regular part of your life by the amount of time you've been a Christian, or by the rate in which you attend Bible classes. It becomes a regular part of our lives when we follow a model that is shown to us all the way from Deuteronomy and in Mark 12 and all throughout the Bible. Jesus says that these are the most important two commandments, and you know them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So that brings us to our last contemplation of our point. Is it bringing renewal in others through you? If God has marked the end of the age with an outpouring of the Spirit and the forgiveness of sins, we ought to share that good news. This could be a reminder to a Christian brother or sister that they need to remember the warmth and joy of God's presence during their circumstance. Or, this could mean that there is someone around you that needs to hear the gospel for the first time. So these are the last days. The gospel was shared by Peter in this text, and then it was passed on all the way until it reached your ears. And so there's an urgency at hand to share the gospel until he comes. That is point number one, the end of the age. Now we'll move on to point number two, which is the deity of Christ. Look with me at verses 22 through 31. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter moves on now from the explanation of Joel to continue his logic for the sermon. Let me remind you of the summary of his sermon. Simply, the Holy Spirit is here, and if that is true, then Jesus has sent him, which means Jesus himself is alive with God. So in this section, he is going to conclude two truths. Jesus is the Lord who forgives sins, and God has established his throne in heaven. Let me repeat that. Jesus is the Lord who forgives sins, and God has established his throne in heaven. In verses 25 through 28, Peter quotes David from Psalm 16. This psalm was one David wrote as a petition psalm where he is requesting God preserve his life from evil. So Peter says that in doing so, David also prophesies of his lineage to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he draws two points from the psalm. David had died and is buried, and so this stanza cannot be about David. And number two, uh, he calls back to the Davidic covenant. He says that Jesus has fulfilled the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant is the promise from God to David that God will cause a descendant of David to have a kingdom which God would establish forever. And so Peter is explaining a very helpful truth for the crowd and for us. Jesus is not only God's son, but he is the answer to the, to the Davidic covenant. He is a king of David's line. And this is one of the explanations that changes our perception of how to read the Old Testament. And Mike has mentioned this a few times, that Jesus has taught the disciples a new way of viewing the Old Testament in a way that points to Christ. And the early church, they were very keen on this often grinding a passage down to sawdust to explain how, to po how it points to Christ. Now, as an aside, I don't really know how the crowd have taken this news so far. Obviously, they are intrigued, and later in the passage, we know that they're convicted of their sin. But they're witnessing one of the greatest things they'll ever encounter, one of the most unique experiences of all history. An explanation, no matter how bold, would have been met with an added layer of patience, no doubt but they also probably would not have appreciated it still. Why? Well, Peter's explained to a crowd of people who killed Jesus that Jesus is God. It's pretty significant. If these people killed Jesus, they must hate him and his teaching. So why should we expect them to love these words? They sound so familiar to Jesus' words. Well, this indeed reflects Peter's renewing and empowerment by the Spirit. He has denied Jesus, afraid to associate with him for fear of his own death. But now Peter is declaring to the people who killed Christ the good news of Christ's gift, salvation and the Spirit. But let's stop here for a moment as well. 
Why should the crowd believe the, the apostles? It's like selling snake juice, you know? It's going to make you live forever. You'll fall in love. But their apostles are reliable witnesses. In history, they're actually key witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. One of those reasons is because the apostles themselves did not believe the resurrection was going to take place. And they had to be convinced by Jesus himself after he rose. Another reason, and similar to what was said of Peter earlier, the thought that they would stand up to Jesus' accusers would have been mortifying. And I'm sure that there would have been some fanatics that could have done it. Some people would have lied for a cause to a certain degree. But that the rate that Christianity was persecuted, it would have died off without the power of God and the Spirit. And one other reason is that we can see by the result of Peter's sermon, by the, by the amount of people who confess Christ, that there is some validity and work being done here by God. So let's look now to see how Peter wraps up his speech. Something we've discussed so far is we've discussed how the Spirit has come primarily to spark renewal in the lives of sinners. That was point number one. But now Peter has taken it a step further to say the mechanism for the Spirit renews is the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. Born of a virgin in the line of David, he was killed and defeated death in our place so that sins can be forgiven. And so next Peter will say the ultimate truth. The ultimate stance and phrase that defines Jesus as God. That Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God, meaning that he has ascended to a position of authority. Jesus himself says in Matthew 28, 15, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what does Peter say? Look with me now at verses 32 through 36. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received sorry, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter jumps straight away from the resurrection of Jesus to describing Jesus' supreme honor in heaven, which is his seat at the right hand of God the Father, and he uses Psalm 110 to prove his statement. So Peter, what is Peter essentially saying here? Christ has been given authority to pour out the Spirit on all flesh, and this is the basis for the Spirit's pouring out, is that Christ has ascended and has been given authority. So Peter has therefore worked through the logic of his whole sermon. You get this. This is what he's trying to say. The Holy Spirit is in the world, as you can hear and see. And if that is true, then God has sent him, declaring that forgiveness for sins is available. Furthermore, Joel and Jesus both promised the gift of the Spirit would come. And if Jesus is the Lord referenced in Joel's prophecy, he cannot send the Spirit if he has died. So, Jesus himself is alive. As a descendant of David, he is seeding seated at the, on high, exalted next to God the Father. So then Peter ends his sermon with a cliffhanger statement. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He just mic drops, con conviction. So Peter has effectively proved his point. 
He's worked through his logic, and in addition, he has shown himself and the apostles to be reliable witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In that last verse, like I mentioned before, his main sermon point is going to be that the Spirit is in fact evidence that Jesus has been made Lord and Christ by God. And this is the gospel we preach. That God sent his only son to die, to be raised, and Jesus has now sit at the right hand, defeating death in our place, so that we would be forgiven of our sins. God has sent his Spirit in the last day, and Peter is sharing this truth with the many that are there. And this will start a movement, the birth of the Christian church. The Spirit will lead these Christians to share the gospel until it has reached you, and we are all commissioned to share the good news. And this is an age-old message you've heard your whole life. So how can it be heard afresh today? Much like a husband tells their spouse that they love them, that they're beautiful. They might know, but it's good to remind them it's touching and loving And if you don't have a spouse, maybe you tell it to your dog. And if you're Courtney and I, you do it more often to your dog than to each other. But how can we hear the gospel afresh this morning? That may depend on your own unique life circumstance. The gospel is multifaceted, and it's dynamic. It can meet us at any moment in our lives for impact and for love. But one way this morning is to take a moment in whatever time of life you're in and reevaluate the impact that the gospel has had on your life. Do you find the gospel message comforting, or do you find it frightening? Perhaps you doubt God's love for you. No matter how long you've been a believer, it's good to reevaluate your assurance of God's deep, deep love for you. He has loved you so much that he obeyed God even to death on a cross and he will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe these things? Or do you cringe in fear that they may not be true for you? Hearing the gospel afresh this morning might mean also to internalize it for its original intention, so that you can remember the peace and love of God. If you have believed that you have used up God's grace, or that you cannot withstand temptation, well, Peter has said this for you in our passage in verse 23 that God the Father had plans that Jesus would be crucified and killed by lawless men, and then be raised to death, raised to life to defeat the punishment of death. And if you have believed that in your life, if you have confessed the truth of God's heroics, then the promise is for you from verse 21. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And like David, when he foresaw Jesus raised, you are correct and free to sing Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. Our sins indeed held him there on the cross. We crucified him, but know for certain that God has raised him, making him both Lord and Christ over your life. That's point number two, the deity of of Jesus. So we've looked at the end of the age, We've looked at the deity of Jesus, and now Peter is going to conclude here the new way of living. Reread with me now verses 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter has concluded his sermon, and we're going to view three responses in accordance. First, there's a response from God. God's Spirit has convicted the hearers of their sin and opened their minds to understand who Jesus was. Number two, there's a response from the crowd. They ask the natural question that one might ask when they're being convicted of sin. What shall we do? The phrasing here, cut to the heart, literally means to be stabbed. It's a visceral image to describe the pains of sin. And lastly, there's a response by the apostles. Peter and the apostles respond pastorally. What they know to be true and what they know Jesus to have done. They tell the crowd to repent and be baptized. So here Peter has established an outline for a full calling to the faith. He passes on the commands to repent and be baptized. Genuine faith always involves repentance, which is changing your mind to trust in Christ. A complete turning around from what previously had been done. And baptism is the outward expression of that. That you have called on Jesus to be your savior. And it's a display of our change. He also asked them what to do. So he asked them to do it in the name of Christ because he is the only one who can save. Next, he declares that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit no matter who they are. He says the promise is for you and for everyone who is far off. Lastly, Peter describes the nature of salvation. It is for everyone, even Gentiles, each person whom God calls. The heart of God does not seek just Jews, but anyone who obeys his commands to repent and trust in him. Then they will be baptized as a sign. So, what shall we ultimately observe from this response? What is this new life that we're trying to get at? Well, this text more or less is a coronation of the Christian church. As we continue through Acts, we're going to continue to see the community and lives of the first believers. But foundational to the fellowship and community that we experience at church, we have to know that it comes at a cost. We may be aware of our sins, but the reality of sin is troubling. When we become Christians, we do not only have peace with God, but we are met with an awareness of the holiness of God. These Jews that heard the message thought they were loving God all their lives. They probably even thought that killing Jesus pleased God. He was a heretic to them, and now they know their mistake and the truth about Jesus Christ and all his teaching. So what can we do to overcome this life met with sin and suffering? A life where we say no to temporary pleasures of sin three things. Number one, repent and receive forgiveness. And it's interesting that when they ask what they should do, uh, Peter has already listed it in his Joel, in the passage in Joel. He says, call on the name of the Lord, Jesus, to be saved. Next, we can utilize the gift of the Holy Spirit by strengthening our bond with him. Do this by praying that God would speak to you in his word and in your thoughts. And remember that God has called you when you were far off from him, and he will never be done with you. So in conclusion, 
Peter, Peter this day has led the first Christian revival in the history of mankind. And he has explained something very key that we often forget. Jesus' ministry didn't end when he rose into heaven. The last act of his earthly ministry was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is in the very presence of God, dwelling with us. And it is here for you as evidence of grace, a wonderful gift. So here are two final exhortations for you to reflect on. Number one, be assured of the gospel in your life. If you aren't sure if the Holy Spirit is with you, it may be an opportunity to speak with one of our deacons or Mike. They can talk to you to help you reevaluate if the gospel has truly made an impact on your life. This may be the beginning of everlasting life with Jesus or a time for you to remember how precious God is. And number two, know the gospel message well. Know it as descriptively as possible and as simply as can be. It is the most definitive thing about your life and it is powerful when you share it. Jesus has fulfilled the scriptures in this way. He has come and sacrificed himself on account of his never-ending love for you. He has risen not just to life, but to be seated in authority. With all that authority, after all he has done, he has chosen to love you further. He has given you his presence in the form of the Spirit, God himself with you to love you, convict you, teach you, and be with you from now through eternity. That same Spirit has come for another very important reason. He offers new life to anyone who asks. This is the reason we gather, so that we can be strengthened to savor our Lord and to share his good news. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your spirit and what it means, Lord. We thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins, and you've given us this gift for all who believe in you, all who call upon the name of you and repent, that they will receive the Holy Spirit. That they should not be troubled, but they should dwell in hope. They should know that you are with them at all times to strengthen them and to love them. In your name I pray, amen.